Chapter Three of Contending Forces by Pauline Hopkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Coming Events Cast Their Shadows Before. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you, but how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff 'tis made of, whereof it is born, I am to learn. And such a want wit sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. Merchant of Venice. The old Pollock homestead was an exquisite spot. The house was a long, low, rambling structure, consisting of many large, airy rooms inside, and ornamented without by piazzas supported by huge pillars. Immense trees shaded the driveway and embowered the stately white mansion. Gay parterres of flowers ornamented the rolling lawn, which divided the great house from the negro quarters, which were picturesquely visible at a convenient distance from it. Within the house, Mr. Montfort had gathered all the treasures which could possibly add to the comfort and pleasure of his lovely wife. Beautiful rugs covered the floors, fine paintings adorned the walls, gleaming statuary flashed upon one from odd nooks and corners. In the library, music had found a home in the most comfortable corner of the room. On a table, one might find a volume of Goethe in the original. On the grand piano, the score of a then popular opera, while a magnificent harp standing near hinted of musical talents highly cultivated. Business had prospered with Montfort; his crops flourished, but a nameless trouble seemed to be halting upon the threshold of the home he loved. And to threaten those whom he cherished so fondly. The first year of residence in Newburn had been very pleasant for the Montforts. Society, such as it was, opened its arms to the family and voted the highly cultured wife and cherub children great additions. The house was a favorite resort for all the young people of the neighborhood. Mrs. Montfort had been educated in England and had brought with her to the provincial families with whom she now associated all the refinements of the old world. Having great wealth for the times, she had always been indulged in every whim by the doting bachelor uncle, who had made her his heiress, but who had died soon after her marriage to Charles Montfort. As Grace Montfort, she found again the love her uncle had delighted to lavish upon his adopted child. Possessed of a bright, joyous nature, she liked nothing better than to gather about her the young men and women of the neighborhood, and make life pleasant for them. And they, in turn, learned from her customs and refinements which otherwise might have never come their way. Every one voted her the dearest and most beautiful woman they had ever known, and all would have gone merry as a marriage bell. But, if it were not for the buts and ifs of this life, what a pleasant place the world would be! Into this paradise of good feelings and admiration came Anson Pollock, with his bitter envy and his unlawful love. And finally, with his determination to possess the lovely Grace Montfort at all hazards. Gradually, the friendly relations of the neighbors turned to coldness and reserve. It was whispered about that Montfort was about to free his slaves. This, in itself, was a dangerous doctrine at that time in that part of the world, and a man suspected of entertaining ideas of freedom for slaves must either change his tactics or his residence. Or else forfeit life and property. Then again, Bill Sampson's words to Hank Davis had somehow found a voice, 
and the suspicion of negro blood in the veins of mrs montfort was a death-blow to a proud spirit and social aspirations these two serious charges had spread abroad like wildfire it was a hot morning a very hot morning in early summer there had been no rain for some time mrs montfort lay in a hammock outside the breakfast-room windows lucy her maid was mending lace and children's garments a short distance away lucy was mrs montfort's foster-sister both were born on the same day their relations had always been those of inseparable friends rather than of mistress and slave. "'No rain to-day, Lucy. I never used to mind the heat at home,' this with a sigh. "'How fair it must be over the blue waters of the bay. I can almost smell the cedars outside the entrance gates.' "'Yes, Miss Grace,' to Lucy her mistress was always Miss Grace. I do feel sort of squeamish myself sometimes when I tink of the gals all dancin' Sundays in the square.' "'But reckon we'll get used to these people here arter a while, leastwise I hope so.' Mrs. Montfort did not reply, and her maid noticed, as she glanced anxiously at her mistress, that a frown was on her face. Lucy sighed. Miss Grace had been noted once for her sunny, cheerful temper. Now all was changed. Beyond the rolling lawn, fields of cotton could be seen, the leaves twisting in the heat and the steady glare of the sun. Zigzag fences separated the cotton from fields of corn. Away in the distance, dim aisles of pine trees stretched their dark arms toward the heavens, their dark foliage suggestive of cool shadows and quiet glades. The road wound in and out among the pines through a woodland and terminated in the highway just visible from the piazza. Inside the long open windows, little Jessie played at building houses with the bags of golden eagles that his father kept in a drawer of his escritoire. "'Grace! Grace! Lucy!' called the child. "'My houses won't stay up. Come in and help me!' Just then a group appeared coming around a corner of an outbuilding. Two men walked beside a pony, astride whose back sat Master Charles. As they approached the house, the gentlemen swept off their wide-brimmed hats in a gallant salute to Mrs. Montfort, which she returned by rising from her recumbent position and dropping a low curtsey. The gentlemen were Mr. Montfort and Mr. Pollock. Jessie, hearing the pony's feet, came out the window and ran down the piazza steps to his father, who, as Charles sprang to the ground, lifted the excited child to the pony's back. Mrs. Montfort watched the approach of the little procession with a pleased smile. She made a fair picture in her elaborately embroidered white morning robe, her beautiful hair arranged in drooping curls at the sides of her head, as was the fashion of the time. "'See me, Mama Grace!' cried Jessie as he clapped his little hands and dug the heels of his tiny slippered feet into the pony's side, in imitation of his father on horseback. As Montfort watched him, the picture of his last Sunday in Bermuda arose before him, the little negro child astride his mother's back, spurring her like a rider his horse, and in his ears rang the pleasant voice of his silver-haired pastor. At the piazza steps he called a servant to take away the pony and turned to enter the house, followed by Mr. Pollock, with Jessie in his arms and Charles by his side. Jessie kept up an incessant chatter. They passed through the breakfast-room where Montfort placed the child upon the floor. 
"'Charles, help me build my houses,' he cried, attracted to his late employment at sight of the Golden Eagles. "'See, Papa, all my houses tumble down. Charles' houses don't fall down, but mine always do. Come and help me, Charles.' "'You are not patient enough, my son,' replied the father, smiling down upon his petulance. "'You must be patient and persevere, and after a while you'll be able to make your houses stand. Isn't that right, Mr. Pollock?' Pollock stood a little apart, gazing in amazement at the scene before him. Golden eagles given to a child to play with was a little beyond him. He made no direct reply to Mr. Montfort's remark, and if the latter had been an observant man, he might have been a bit puzzled at the expression on his face. But Charles Montfort was ingenuousness itself, seeing in no man an enemy. Anson Pollock was his opposite. His ruling passion was covetousness. His eyes were fairly dazzled by the sight of the gold so carelessly strewing the floor. It positively took away his breath. "'Come, Pollock, we will talk over those matters in my study,' said Montfort presently. "'My son,' he added as he paused at the doorway, "'be careful not to lose your ducats. They are your portion to pay your college bills when you cross the ocean to finish your education.' "'Going to send him abroad to study?' carelessly inquired Pollock. "'Oh, yes, America's all right for me, but bonny England for my boys.' Anson Pollock, whom Charles Montfort had chosen for his friend, was a man of dashing appearance. He carried his years jauntily, had made a good opinion of himself where women were concerned. He was made much of by the ladies in the vicinity because of his wealth. It mattered not that his wife had died mysteriously.' Rumor said his ill-treatment and infidelity had driven her to suicide. It had even been whispered that he had not hesitated to whip her by proxy through his overseer, Bill Sampson, in the same way he did his slaves. But rumor is a lying jade. Nevertheless, his fair speech, auburn curls, and deep blue eyes, so falsely smiling, won his way, and Mr. Pollock was the popular ladies' man of two counties. He had showered Mrs. Montfort with assiduous attention since her arrival three years before, but he soon found that he made no headway. Once he dared to tell her of his passion, that from the first moment he saw her aboard the island queen he had been maddened by her beauty. "'Why do you tell me this?' she cried in angry amazement at his daring. "'Am I so careless of my husband's honour that his friends feel at liberty to insult me?' "'Granted that I overstep the bounds of friendship in speaking thus to you, but it is from no lack of respect, rather the deed of one who risks all upon one throw of the dice. Have mercy, I pray you, and grant me your friendship, your love.' Then Grace Montfort said, while her eyes blazed with wrath, "'Mr. Pollock, we are strangers here, my husband and I. He trusts you, and I have no wish to disturb that trust.' but if you ever address such words to me again, I shall let Mr. Montfort know the kind of man you are. I promise you that he will know how to deal with you. This conversation had taken place one night at a grand fete where Grace had been the belle of the assembly. They were in the conservatory at the time. Anson Pollock was not accustomed to having his advances received in this way by any woman whom he elected to honor with his admiration. As the indignant woman swept back to the ballroom, he stood and watched her with an evil look which meant no good. 
After that they met as usual, but Pollock had never ventured to speak to her again of love. Outwardly he was the same suave, genial gentleman, but within his breast was a living fire of hatred. The two men became faster friends than ever. Mrs. Montfort was pleased to have it so. They had so few friends in this alien land. She felt so lonely, so helpless. She dreaded making enemies. It was but the lull before the storm. When the study door had closed behind the two men, Mr. Montfort dropped his pleasant, careless manner and faced Mr. Pollock with an anxious face. Pollock, he began abruptly, I'm worried. What about? asked Pollock, turning from the window where he seemed to be viewing the landscape. Have you heard the rumors about my wife being of African descent? Montfort asked, coming very close to Pollock, as though afraid the very air would hear him. There are threats, too, against my life because of my desire to free my slaves. Nonsense! exclaimed Pollock. I have heard the rumors about Mrs. Montfort, but that is nothing, nothing but the malice of some malicious, jealous woman. As for the threats against your life, how can you think of such things a second time? You are among the most chivalrous people on the face of the earth who will protect you in your home. Montfort stood a moment before his friend, gazing at him earnestly. Then he said, Pollock, if anything happens to me, I want you to promise me to help my wife and babies get back to Bermuda. Why, what can happen, man? You're nervous without a cause. In that safe, continued Montfort, not heeding the interruption, you will find money and deeds. Promise me that you will save them for my family. I promise, but it is all nonsense. I shall hold you to your promise, replied Montfort solemnly. The Committee on Public Safety generally met once a month. They had a chairman, but no one knew his identity save a chosen few of the committee. Indeed, very little was known positively as to the identity of any of the members. Certainly no one would ever have suspected the elegant Anson Pollock of being connected with such an organization. On this particular evening, Bill Sampson lounged by the Jefferson House on the lookout for some of his friends. Anson Pollock sat on the broad steps, evidently on the watch for someone, too. Hi, Bill, he called as the latter came in sight. Hello. "'Want me?' returned Bill, and at a nod from his employer he followed him through the entrance to a small back room generally used for meetings of the committee. "'Anything new for the committee tonight?' asked Pollock, as he lounged over the back of a chair. Bill took a seat on the edge of the table, and began cutting circles in the air with his rawhide. Bill Sampson was a character in his way. One could not imagine Newburn without Bill— and no one could possibly imagine Bill without his rawhide. Well, mabby, mabby, depends on what you call work. Somebody, with a sly glance at Pollock from beneath his bushy eyebrows, somebody's been circulating a report about a friend of yourn. Well, replied Pollock sharply, looks like we treat a possum show. Well, somebody says how's Montfort's slaves is working for part pay. Leastways, every mother's son of them will be free inside of five years. Anything else? We kind of thought that'd do for a spell. He's done nuff in that are to convict him and buy his halter. That'll do for one pint. But that don't cover the case. What luck have you had in spreading the other report? 
"'Well,' said Bill, as he shot a copious draught of tobacco-juice over the sanded floor, "'most the fellers think it a pity about Miss Montfort. Blamed nice woman. She's been mighty good to Jeff Peterson's family, and Jeff he feels mighty uncomfortable about hurtin' on her, durned if he don't.' "'You and Jeff want to do your duty,' replied Pollock. "'No matter about sentiment. Influence is great with certain people.' and if niggers are tolerated in any way, it will end in weakening the law, and then good-bye to our institutions. "'Course, course. We tend to do our duty, yes, sir, our whole duty. But it beats all nature about Miss Montfort. I knowed she was mixed the minute I seed her, but ain't enough to track tension.' He paused a moment, and then said with a sigh, "'Well, Captain, what's your orders?' Pollock saw that the man's sympathy was more than half enlisted on the woman's side, and with arch diplomacy changed his tactics. He handed Bill a cigar, saying, "'We may as well make ourselves comfortable,' and before the latter had fairly begun to enjoy the fragrant weed, had called for whiskey and was pressing him to help himself. Under its stimulating influence, Bill soon lost what slight scruples he had felt, and was as eager for the downfall of the unfortunate family as his patron. "'Well, Bill,' continued Pollock, "'the first thing to be done is to put Montford out of the way, and then it will be plain sailing. The next question is, who will do that job?' "'Reckon I know just the man. The man of the right spirit who will be glad to serve his country for a reasonable consideration. And that reminds me, how much of the property is to be reserved for you?' The boys may have what they can get of it. I don't care for any part of the spoils. All I want is the mother and the children. Just so. Well, now, seein's I understand the case just as you want it, I'll lay low, set the boys on. You keep shady and stand ready the minute the mine's fired. I ain't got a cuss again Monsford myself, but the institution must be respected. Sure there's plenty of whiskey and stuff in the cellar? "'Twould look kind of mean in Montfort not to have a full cellar. "'It's a big job, and the boys'll be thirsty.' With this the two worthies arose from their seats, and sauntered through the door and up to the bar. A day or two after the foregoing, Hank Davis, true to his word, formally applied to Mr. Montfort for the position of overseer on his plantation. "'What made you think that I wanted an overseer?' asked Montfort as he pushed his hat off his face a little further, and eyed the petitioner critically, mentally vowing that he would never place even a horse in the power of such an ill-favored, beastly-looking fellow. "'Well, most southern gentlemen don't care to have a nigger overseer. It spiles em. They gives themselves airs and get sot up in their ideas. Thought maybe you, being a stranger, mightn't know our ways. You see, it's just here— we have certain rules in this community that we all must bide by if we want to avoid trouble. As Hank ventured this last remark in a cautious manner, he scraped the gravel of the walk with one foot, while he slyly noted the reception of his venture by an upward cast of the eye. Charles Montfort looked at him a moment with a slumbering wrath, before he asked with dangerous coolness, "'What do I understand by what you have just said, Mr. Davis?' "'Do you mean to insinuate that a man cannot do as he will with his own property?' "'Well, no, not exactly. But it's just here to speak plainly as tween friends,' replied Hank, as he shifted his tobacco to the other side of his mouth. 
The plain fact is, I want the job of driving your niggers, and you'll want to keep the community friendly to your now it's got out that you're a-gwine to set the gang free by and by. Charles Montfort possessed one characteristic of the West Indian to a marked degree, and that was a bad temper under just provocation. Without more ado, he seized the offending Hank by the collar, and with his riding-whip, which he carried in his hand, he administered a sound flogging to the offender. As he released him, he said, "'When you leave my grounds, don't you ever set your foot inside the gates again, or it will be the worse for you.' Hank said nothing as he raised himself from the ground where the irate man had thrown him. But as he turned to leave the place, he looked at Mr. Montfort, and even in his wrath at the insolence of such a mongrel cur as he mentally styled Davis, Charles Montfort felt a shudder of real physical fear pass over him for a moment. Surprised at himself, he turned to enter the house, dismissing the whole incident as a piece of impudence which he had done well to chastise. Taking it all in all, Mr. Montfort was not feeling very happy on this June morning, as he sat upon the piazza, thinking over the late encounter. An hour passed swiftly away. Still the master of the house continued his meditations, but now he had changed his seat for a thoughtful promenade up and down the broad piazza. Finally he said softly to himself, "'Yes, that is just what I'll do. I'll send Gracie and the little fellows home for a while on a visit.' and there they shall stay until I know just what the trouble is here about the slaves, and certain insinuations concerning my family are cleared up. When a man makes up his mind that he has solved a difficult problem that has worried him, he generally has an air of relief which is the more pathetic, that in nine cases out of ten he does not believe that his remedy will prove effective, although he fancies that he so believes. When Hank Davis left Mr. Montfort, he moved slowly down the sun-baked road, nursing his wrath and swearing vengeance. Nothing but the life of the man who had inflicted such an insult upon him could wipe it out. He had received the same treatment that he had given hundreds of his associates, until his name and presence had become a terror in the county where he resided. Hitherto he had given his orders and they had been obeyed. But here was a man, a comparative stranger, for whom he considered that he had been willing to do a great kindness, for a consideration, and not only had he met with a refusal of his request, but at the same time had received personal violence of a character that was most galling to the spirit of any free-born southern man, an ordinary cow-hiding such as he would mete out to his slave. As he thought more and more about the matter, he grew more and more filled with a desire for vengeance, not the ordinary kind, but something extraordinary. As he gradually turned over in his mind schemes for the undoing of the Montforts, he was accosted by the voice of Bill Sampson, calling to him from across the fields. Bill was overseeing the harvesting of a great field of cotton, and the voices of the slaves could be heard drawing out their weird and plaintive notes as they sought by song, movement, to lighten the monotony of their heavy tasks, and to bring solace to their sad hearts. Some, in their simple ignorance, may not have known why they were sad, but, like the captive bird, their hearts longed for that which was ever the birthright of man, property in himself. Crushed out of sight for many years, 
the seed of all desire for all those things which make a man and sweeten toil was struggling ever toward the light of civilization denied to these poor ignorant enslaved souls hank sat down on a log by the wayside and he beckoned bill over to him the latter came slowly across the field and seated himself astride one end of the log howdy hank howdy bill passed in greeting between the two cronies "'Pears like to me, Hank, you're lookin' pale,' remarked Bill, as he trailed his whip backward and forward in the dust. Hank could stand it no longer, and with a terrible imprecation he unfolded to his friend his tale of woe and insult. Bill listened with eager curiosity, and a satisfied knowing look might have been seen to settle about the corners of his eyes and mouth. "'Well, well,' said he, these are great times when a damned west Injy half-white nigger can raise his hand agin a white man. Be you hurt much, Hank? Some in my body, but more in my feelings. What are we a-comin' to? I tell you, Hank, it's about time something was done. That's all well enough to talk, replied Hank, but what can a man do agin the money that that feller's got to back him up? I can't see a handle on him. Well, replied Bill, I can. You can, exclaimed Hank, while a slow smile of derision covered his face. Well, I'd just like to know how. Yer can laugh, Hank Davis, but it's a fact. Tain't going to be no hard job nother to get all that money, all them purty trinkets and fine furniture, and the seven hundred niggers in our pockets, if— And here he paused, as though to give emphasis to his words, if we works the thing right. "'Damn it all, man, why don't you let out?' as he rose excitedly from his seat on the log. "'I'm the man to help on anything again, that man, and yer knows it. No need of your being so infernal aggravating about telling me.' Bill laughed at his companion's excitement. "'Easy thar, easy, Hank. This are a mighty ticklish job, and we can work it. We can work it. First place, you see, Montfort's brought them slays of his'n here, and don't tend to keep em only about ten years.' and then every one of them will have bought itself, according to the laws that are governing them over to the West Indies. Now, you know there's a bad example to set before the niggers round this town. Anyway, we's going to think so, drawled Bill with an expressive wink at his friend. It's a law of the United States that if any man is caught creating dissatisfaction among the slaves, he dissolves death, and death he gets. Now, this our Montfort has been causing trouble for us by his example. Every nigger round here knows all about his arrangements for giving his slaves their freedom, and I tell you, Hank, it's causing dissatisfaction among all our slaves. And then the money, honey, the money. Such sights of it all done up in little chamois-skin bags, and that boy Jesse sitting on the floor amusing himself building houses with them gold eagles. Hank listened to his companion's words with open mouth. As the latter finished, he said, with a look of admiration, "'Well, I'll be damned. Now look a here, Bill Sampson. You needn't tell me that all that you have just unfolded to me is your own ideas, cause you could no more have got them thoughts through your thick head than I could. Someone's been fixing you up. Out with it now, and tell me the whole thing. If we's going into this business, we's got to be square on the deal with our friends. Who's the bottom of this thing?' Bill produced a plug of tobacco, offered his friend a chew, and took one himself. "'What I'm telling you, Hank, is tween friends,' said he, chewing and crossing his legs. 
"'Just so,' replied Hank. "'I was telling you the originator of this plan, or I was about to,' Bill paused to spit out some of his tobacco juice on the ground, so that it would not overflow the tank, so to speak, and run out of each corner of his mouth. "'Beats all nature, Hank, how a man'll get dead set onto a piece of caliker. "'Meanin' by that, Bill, that Aunt's Pollock's got set on some gal?' "'Fact,' said Bill, with a wink. "'Whose?' asked Hank. "'It won't be Miss Montford herself, Hank.' "'Sho! You don't say really,' said Hank, with a wicked look. "'Don't blame him. Blamed if I do. "'But that's all the good that'll do him.' Bill cut the air into imaginary circles with his whip, and, without taking any notice of his friend, continued. "'As I was a-sayin', Aunt's Pollock,' he says to me, "'Bill, that's a deuced purty woman of Montfort's, "'and I told him what I thought about her having black blood in her somewhere. "'Mabby,' says he, "Mabby," "'and then he says, kind of generous-like, "'I'd take the woman and two brats, "'and the two boys might have the slaves "'and the money and the fixins in the house. "'I told him the boys'd stand by him "'and anything he might do to rid a peaceful neighborhood "'of such a disturbing critter as Montfort.' I told him I thought yer would be about the very match to light on Montfort, so he wouldn't give us any more trouble. And so we've been waiting for the business to develop itself good and ripe, and I just think this tack of Montfort's on yer will do about the business for the whole of them. Bill, said Hank Davis, as he held out his hand to his friend, we allers been partners, and I reckon we allers will be. End of chapter 3